0: You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey, everybody, it's episode 190 of the Pimcron Warhammer podcast. I am Pimcron, and we are brought to you today by gamemat.eu and our beautiful, sexy, good smelling Patreon patrons. Head over to patreon.com to support the show, and head over to gamemat.eu to support that wonderful company. Seriously, I love them. They've always been so nice to us, and I have probably hundreds of pounds of their merchandise. <laughs> I've bought pretty much every single thing they make, uh, except the MDF. I don't do it. I don't really do MDF. But other than that, and the only reason why it's not because MDF is substandard or anything like that, but when you run a gaming convention and you have to put all your train in pallets and transport them and then pack them back up in a hurry and all of that, you really need something that's super durable. And in the past. My MDF, the buildings that I did have, um, and they weren't you but it's irrelevant. MDF does not hold up as well. They get nicked and you know marred and all that. But if you have a table at home or you have a store or something like that, and you're not transporting them and having strangers touch all over them, then you're totally fine. That's why I buy their resin stuff. Because the resin is super... I mean, you could... L- I've mentioned it before years ago. You could actually murder someone. With one of those terrain pieces. I, I don't care what it is. You grab any one of their, like their desert canyon formations or their moss covered mountains or their ruins. You just grab any of that and you can defend your home. I keep one of their ruins next to my bed at night. So, just so you know, no reason to keep a bat. I've got this ruin from gamemat.eu. <laughs> I wonder if they're going to say something about me encouraging people to murder with their product. I don't know. We'll, we'll see if there's still a uh, sponsor next next episode. Anyway, what are we talking about here, right? Besides murder, what what's this episode about? Well, it, <laughs> it is another segment with Alan Merritt. Remember I told you we recorded for three hours, and we covered all sorts of topics from his several decades working for Games Workshop. But tonight... Specifically, we are discussing The Lord of the Rings, which, wait, don't tune out yet. I know a lot of the American listeners don't play Lord of the Rings as much, but it was super big all across the world, except in the U.S., because uh, yeehaw! I have no idea why, but, but it's actually a fascinating conversation. He discusses dealing with, what are they, Miramax? I forget what the, I forget what the studio company is that had the rights to the movies, but the ones that made all of the movies, they um they had to deal with Games Workshop and license that out and all that stuff. So um, it's a very very interesting process and trying to sculpt all the models and what they could and could not sculpt because certain movies weren't out yet, and it's. I was fascinated with it, so hopefully if you liked the last episode talking about the making of White Dwarf, you'll enjoy this episode as well, because it's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and I just love that sort of thing. We are also discussing the Harrow Deep, the Exiled Dead warband war for uh, Warhammer Underworlds, and we'll say whether or not we want that. We also have a rebuttal email that is putting me in my place from our friend Andrew, and we will see how I respond to that. And trust me, I don't respond to being corrected very well at all. Anyway, what have I been up to? Well, I have been spending all of my free time working on Brutal Space, which is the new spaceship version of Brutality. It's super fun. I've been starting to flesh out the different factions and things like that. I'm also desperately awaiting my short story anthology to come in the mail. It's the first printing that I've done of it, and I need to sit down and edit it. And I am so excited to grab like a hot tea or something. And we just recently bought my whole my whole house reads. And I don't know if I've described this to you or not before, but we don't have television. I have no cable. I have no satellite. We just have never had TV because we don't we think it's kind of a waste of time. So, my children don't, like, hang out on tablets or anything. They get, like, one hour three times a week is what they get. And that's after their schoolwork. So, we've extremely limit all that stuff. And um, instead, they, like, play out in the woods and they, you know, play with toys and read books. So, we've been wanting to do it for a long time. But this winter, we finally broke down and bought, like, this um, flat couch platform to go in the corner of our living room and then i bought the biggest widest led vanity light like for a bathroom that goes over your sink it's a real long wide uh strip led fixture and we wired it up and all that wired it up with a plug and we sit there and read like i'm i'm reading a book right now i actually just finished a book with my daughter and we just we all just sit there and read it's awesome so i am so excited to have that book physically in my hand, and I will do the first editing process very shortly with it actually in my hand. I can write on the pages. It's 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 very exciting to me. Uh, this week at the club, I played Brutality with Matt. I had a store campaign game scheduled, but my friend Griff canceled on me, so I'm going to punch him in the sack when I see him. But Matt, luckily was coming there for Brutality as well. So we played Brutality. We played one game where I beat him eight to five, I believe it was. And it was, I don't even remember what game. Oh, it was one of the random generated missions that it randomizes the deployment and the objective and all that. It was pretty cool. Then we decided to play a co-op game against Toasty, which Toasty is a miniature that I don't really know what it was. It was like a children's toy or a Happy Meal item, and it's a big cartoon toaster, and he's got toast sticking out of him, and he's got one hand with, like, a fork and one hand with a knife or something, and it's real cartoony, but it's it's been repainted by Matt and made to be this wandering monster in the Brutal, and what I love about Brutality is anything goes. You can be silly with it. You can be ultra-serious. And this is one of those things where people tell stories about, dude, I I was in the woods and this giant toaster just started running through the woods and asking if I wanted toast and it it crushed me and ran me over with its tracks. It's like this big mechanized toaster. Anyway, he repainted it to great effect and made it a wandering monster. So we decided to play the boss battle, which is in the latest supplement, and it randomizes a bunch of stuff, but uh, we played against Toasty and... Of course, naturally, he wrecked our entire warband, but what was pretty fantastic about it, it was a crazy ending. So at the very end, Matt's last guy, and all mine were dead, Matt's last guy had one wound left, and Matt said, well, I'm going to go all out. Toasty had three hit points left, and he charged into it. Now, this is an augmenter, so he's not really meant for melee, necessarily. He's a support class. But instead of time slipping himself, he just charged in and he's like, well, you know, I'm either going to die a, a chump or uh, something else. Anyway, he charged it and he did three unsaved wounds to it and killed the toaster and the toaster did one unsaved wound to him and killed him. So in the very end, he jumps up there and kills Toasty while it does the fatal blow to him as well. It was a fantastic ending to a co-op game. Very fun. So that is what I've been up to. I think I've probably rambled on long enough, so I hope you enjoy our interview with Alan Merritt. He has been a delight the couple years ago when I interviewed him and now. He's a wealth of knowledge, super, super nice guy, and I think that comes across in the interviews. And he really, for me, he really humanizes Games Workshop because you always, like, tend to think the worst about Games Workshop and... Even my assumptions now are, are a lot of times I'm assuming they have some sort of angle. And according to him, and I believe him, I don't think he's lying. He's like, no, we just didn't think that you would take it to the nth degree. <laughs> so it's like they really are casual players and they're making this game having no idea how it's going to be twisted to be hyper competitive or min maxed or whatever. And that's actually pretty refreshing because if they're doing it by accident then I have way more understanding and forgiveness for them versus just doing it for the prophets, brother. All right, let's go. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey, y'all, it's the Tesseract mailbox, and today we have a rebuttal letter from a listener, Andrew, and he is the several-time Shorehammer champion in both AOS and 40K. So, no, he hasn't won every year, but he's won several times. So, uh, he writes, oh, and by the way, I had a voicemail lined up for this week, but uh, his, Andrew's, letter was pertinent specifically to the last episode, so I'm going to have to delay that one week and put that on next week. So, sorry about that. He writes, Hi, Pemkron. I just had to reply to your last rant on those damn FAQs and how they and those young whippersnappers need to get off my lawn. I understand being in the know for everything is time-consuming, but if you are playing an army and there is an FAQ available, you should either have it or save it as a tab on your phone. If there is a questionable rule, this is GW, there is usually at least one per codex. Oh, aren't you charitable, Andrew? Aren't you charitable? One per codex. ha. <laughs> Anyway, you can quick reference and keep on playing. Let me get my humble brag out of the way. I've been playing Games Workshop games of all sorts since 95, and back in my day, the rules sucked and we liked them. The models brought you in, but the rules were terribly convoluted and difficult. I shot your Rhino in the side with a las Cannon, let me roll my 3d6 and add 9, and try to beat your armor value for no effect whatsoever. Over the years, I've seen Taldar, invisible units with multi-wound models, Eldar summoning demons. Oh man, You're, you're bringing back some nasty stuff, Andrew. I remember all this. And all kinds of crap that wasn't fun and made no sense. Now, finally, Games Workshop is updating rules at a decent pace, and when they screw something up, they're toning it back down within a short period. I've had armies that were terrible for years and years ever since they were introduced, like Beasts of Chaos and Necrons, but their balance update is much needed. Tone down flyers? Yes, please. Tone down bodyguard r- rules and out of line of sight? Shooting? Thank you. I may or may not have won a Shorehammer due to Hiveguard. <laughs> now the balance update is not even three full pages of updates, so not a long read, but Necrons needed it, Harlequins and drakari needed it, and Space Marines went from two wound paperweights to durable models where their save matters. I'm just looking forward to the TierNid FAQ where they tone down the greatness that is NIDS, because GW always takes it too far. Andrew H. Okay, Andrew, how do I put this lightly? Um, you're completely wrong. <laughs> no, um, I get what you're saying. And like I said, I hope I wasn't too harsh on GW uh, when I, I mentioned that last time. And they are trying to fix the game. I do get that. And I know there's probably a strategy behind it as far as sales goes. We make this broken thing, we sell a bunch of models, and then we tone it down. That's probably what they're intentionally doing. I can't imagine that their games designers or their rules designers are so out of touch that they have no idea that X, Y, or Z is just absolutely broken. Like I just some of the things you just look at the paper and you're like, wow, that's completely broken. You don't even have to play test it, you just know it is. And somehow they don't know that. But it really is spurring, you know, the sales and all that stuff. And I also understand that probably my disinterest in the FAQs and the Errata and the balance sheet and all of that is purely laziness. I I admit that wholeheartedly. But ultimately, I just have a lot going on and I just don't care. So even if the FAQs help me, it doesn't matter because I just don't care. So I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, eventually I'm a late adopter to basically everything, right? I didn't do MySpace for years until, you know, I was like one of the last adopters of Myspace. And then when Facebook came along, I was like, Oh, I don't like I don't like Facebook. So it took me a long time once everybody else I knew was on Facebook, eventually I was like, okay, I'll get a Facebook and smartphones. geez, I've only had a smartphone for like four years or something because I didn't want all the apps. I didn't want all that stuff. I just didn't want it. I didn't want Facebook on my phone. I didn't want constant tweets or whatever popping up on my phone. I wanted to make calls and send texts. That's all I wanted to do. And even now, like now that I do have a smartphone, I turn off all my notifications to everything. All of my apps are sleeping at all time. I don't want them to remind me of some new update or whatever. I just truly don't care. If I go to use that app and it needs to be updated, then I'll update it. But I don't need it dinging and donging every five seconds. I know I sound like an older and older man here. But seriously, I just, uh, I don't know. I want to be left alone, essentially. Um, So also with my real-world job things get very complicated and it's always me having to know the full situation and it's always me having to manage everything because I'm a manager and, you know, controlling and taking care of things. That's my whole job, not to mention being a dad and all that too. But so when I play a war game, I truly do not want to do homework. I don't want to sit home and have to print out the secondary objectives that I probably want to pick in my next pickup game and I don't want to have to paste FAQs into my codex every 5 minutes and I just I just find it exhausting so wargaming is my escape so I will even if it's to my own detriment my laziness is just going to win out that's just the way it is so I play the game for fun and and that's it so, um, as far as Necrons, I don't even know what the, uh, you say Necrons were changed. I have no idea what the change even was, um, whether it was to enhance my Necrons or to not, but I'm just going to play them the way the rule book says, <laughs> this is like the laziest wargamer, but it's the truth. I just, whatever, man. I don't know. And you know what? In two weeks, they're going to publish another FAQ saying that this FAQ, was mistaken. Actually, they did that. They already did that. I was listening to people online on on Facebook talking, and they already had errors in the balance sheet, so they had to reissue the balance sheet because it had errors. So, uh, checkmate. That's all I have to say. Want that or want that not? On this edition of Want That or Want That Not, we are discussing the new Warhammer Underworld's Harrow Deep The Exiled Dead Warband. Now, the first thing that strikes me about this is it's forty-two dollars for seven miniatures. And I mean honestly, that's not that bad of a a price given that it's GW, but is it just mirrors the underworlds clans getting larger? I feel like the underworlds clans were usually like four models or something. Now, this is a warband made up of mostly zombies, so I guess they're like maybe super cheap in the game or something like that. But let's actually get into what they are. It appears to be some sort of necromancer or some sort of person that is running these zombies, right? And it's a guy, I guess it very much has a magus look to it it's all bent over and it's got this big frill behind its head and it's bald and it's got a staff and it's got a bunch of hands hanging on ropes around its its waist and it very much actually looks like the were they the delac the the delac models i used to make my new Necron warriors um it it very well could just be a delac character like it's it's extremely it looks just like them. It's hunched over. It's thin. It's got the like the tunic slash trench coat thing they wear. It's bald like them. It is very much Dalak. It's like they copy and pasted. The staff's kind of neat looking. Um, overall, I think this is slightly better than your average um, generic necromancer. I do think the most interesting thing about it is probably the staff and also the hands hanging on string around its belt. I do like those touches. The rest of the model's kind of meh. I give it like a CC+. It's alright. You've got another zombie that looks somewhat like Gollum running around. It's got some sort of bolt out of its back, and it's running with a club. I really find nothing interesting about this model. Let's move on to the next one. This one's actually kind of neat. It's like a Frankenstein sort of thing, where it's got these bolts and wire coming out of its one arm, and it's a regular regular, uh, zombie. But its one arm is giant and muscular like a Frankenstein monster. And that is actually unique enough for me to say I genuinely like that model. It's interesting. There's something neat going on. Something I haven't seen before. It's actually pretty cool. I also just noticed that he's got shackles on his feet. That's pretty neat. So, so far I've got one that I kind of like. One that I think is super not interesting. And one that I actually do like. Let's go on to the rest of them. Here's a skeleton with an axe and a shield. Super, super boring. Nothing special about this. So we've got one I like, one I'm kind of neutral to, and two that I don't like. Let's—I bet that was Leroy. Um, let's go on to the next one. This one has an eye patch, and I don't truly know what's going on here. It looks like its whole torso is twisted, like its feet are pointing one way, and it's almost like it was—it was put back together. And the arms were put on backwards, where the arms are like in front of its back. I think that's what's going on. It's, I suppose, interesting, but there's not much to see here. It's got an eye patch, it's got long hair, it might be a lady. And it's got, once again, this post in its back with the wire. And eh, not only do I find it confusing, but I don't think it's particularly interesting. The next one is kind of hunched over, and it's kind of, well, they painted it greenish color. And um it's also doesn't really strike me as particularly anything. So I don't not really a big fan of that one either. And then finally we've got a zombie that is kind of staggering, a very typical zombie pose, right? It's got one arm out and it's emaciated, it's shirtless, it's got a beard, a bolt sticking out of its head, a bunch of these uh iron rods sticking out of its back. And this one's actually pretty cool. It's very generic zombie, but I got to say, I'm kind of a sucker for it. So being generous, I like, and I could see myself buying three out of seven of these models. Uh, That is not worth it to me at all for $42. And I was really excited too, because I love the undead. I love zombies. I love necromancers. I've always loved all that stuff. And I thought before I looked at these clothes, I was like, oh man, this is going to be awesome. Like, I can't wait. I'll probably buy this for Brutality. And then I look at it, and I'm like, meh, I got two zombies in here I actually like. Necromancer's, eh, he's fine, I guess. I find this very uninspired. I don't like it. I just, it's just kind of blah. I mean, when you got something called Harrow Deep and the Exiled Dead, I feel like you could have done something way cooler. And that skeleton is just straight out of the regular skeleton box, as far as blandness. If you had a unit of 20 of him, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's the skeleton squad. It's, it's totally not interesting. So for $42, it is certainly not worth me buying the two models I actually liked and possibly the third one that I med. That's a new word, by the way. It's meh, but in past tense, med. So yeah, overall, I find this very meh, and it is a what not well want that not sorry i forgot this this thing i've been doing for four years practically i completely forgot what those segments called it's a want that not from the pimp Cron. now it's time for real talk with pimp Cron. the other question that we had was uh so one of my listeners wrote in about let me specifically read what he said uh because I don't want to mess it up. Okay, it says, um, What goes on behind the scenes when GW uses licenses for outer IP? Case in point, Lord of the Rings. How was the interaction and restrictions placed on what could be done? And how, if anything, were there ongoing directional meetings of the Tolkien estate? For the
1: longest time, like pretty much through the whole of the, of the 19, 1990s, we didn't do any licensing at all as far as I can remember mm-hmm. um, we, we've done quite a bit of we had quite a few licensed license properties in the 80s including, funnily enough, Lord of the Rings but we had a D&D license, and uh, license Lord of the Rings license, a Doctor Who license, various other ones gang, gangsters, we did um thought so that was a license, I forget now uh, or Star Trek we had some Star Trek, we did Star Trek we, we did quite a lot of different things back in the 80s but hmm. um, And the two big kind of fantasy licenses that we did in in the 80s were Lord of the Rings and D&D. And the Lord of the Rings license was a literary license. It was with Tolkien Enterprises. They were relatively easy to deal with because they didn't really have any interest in micromanaging the, the licensing process. They just gave us a license and allowed us to produce things for Lord of the Rings. And we did. That was quite a, quite a big range, quite successful. Being D on the other hand was torturous and painful, as because, <laughs> because, uh, every model had to be approved by TSR, and uh, that involved sending master copies of all the miniatures to America, and um, uh, and then involved tedious follow up follow up phone calls where I'd spend hours and hours and hours talking to the the good and the great at TSR about this miniature and that miniature and. And then pretending to get them altered, to, so that they would approve them, and, mm. uh, and it was just kind of um, difficult. They weren't particularly interested in the in the subject matters per se, in that they weren't interested in whether we did bugbears or orcs or whether that we did, you know, clerics or fighters. But if we did something, they they were all over it, and um, to the point where it actually was tedious and obstructive but there you go good old Frank of god rest his soul um but um the thing that we from that experience that we'd um established was that if i had an opportunity to get a miniature designed um if a uh, fantasy miniature if i released it as a warhammer miniature it's all better than if i released it as a lord of the rings miniature or if i released it as an ad and d miniature
0: wow so there's so- a certain turning point there
1: it was just a, an obvious truth that that grew out of that experience of, mm. you know what? Actually, um, we we don't we don't we're not we might be selling some miniatures to some other customers who don't who wouldn't normally buy Warhammer miniatures, but actually, if we just look at our bottom the bottom line and say how many of these did we sell? uh the, the best selling miniatures were Warhammer miniatures. It seemed that. But the license, licensing didn't necessarily give the same return on a, a code by code basis, and there was no real evidence that we were getting any additional volumes mm-hmm. to, through reaching new customers because the miniatures were all in the same shops. You know, they were all going to the same hobby outlets. We didn't really. There were no stores that only took D D miniatures or only took Lord of Rings miniatures. We had customers that bought Citadel miniatures.
0: So So what about the the (coughs) newer Lord of the Rings models in dealing with the studio, the cinema or whatever, the the movie-based ones?
1: So that's why we went away from focusing on licensing and we pretty much focused all our efforts into into our own properties and Warhammer 40k and their derivatives. Uh, And then in late 1998, I believe, 1999, news started to circulate around about what was happening with the Peter Jackson film, the Mm -hmm. big publicity was coming out. And a group of people inside a games workshop, um, relatively uh, senior management group, um, got themselves together and made a pitch to uh, management to say, look, we know that we don't do licensing, but this looks like we must do this because we must pitch to get this license because these are going to be, defining movies of the gen- of our generation, did mm-hmm. our absolutely we must get in there, we must get in on the bottom on the get in on the thing. And um, the chief executive at the time, a chap called Chris Prentice, agreed. So we pulled together a working group, I was part of that working group, although I didn't really have much to do with um, the execution of it because I was moving into a different role. But um, we we secured the the license with New Line Cinema who were the, I don't know, the publishers of the movie. Um, and so our deal was with New Line Cinemas and we had uh, complete access to everything in all of the movies all the time. No, not, not quite. <laughs> It, it, we had access to those elements and, uh, of the movie that they were happy for us to have access to, but uh, there were always elements of the movies that we weren't allowed to have access to until at certain points in the in in the um, in the production cycle of those movies. So, oh. if, I, if I remember rightly, we 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 weren't allowed to sort of see or make anything to do with the Balrog until like. After the film had been published, I think,
0: because
1: oh. uh, it was just really secret. And there's two reasons why that's that they were because uh, that the New Line were were holding back some assets because they wanted them to be like mega reveals. They didn't want to spoil. They didn't want those spoilers to get out into the world uh, ahead of their schedule. So they were very protective about certain assets. That makes But, sense. Also, but also, we 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 kind of grew to understand that a lot of those things simply didn't exist because they were computer generated and then they just didn't exist until late in the day and i think the balrog fell into that category of it was a it was an asset that literally didn't exist until the last minute And they kept changing the hill troll. i can't remember all the details but yeah it was kind of fun um we had amazing access to them um, to the source material i mean the movie scripts and and uh the assets the first um thing that um, new Newline organized were style guides, which were quite comprehensive folders that included almost everything, you know, um script styles, um graphics,
0: um probably wardrobe and things like that as well. Yeah,
1: just tons and tons and tons of material. And um we set up a special little cell within the studio that was, uh, you needed a special pass to get into into the room where they were, so that everything was kept really secret and <laughs> there. We didn't want to upset that. We didn't want to be responsible for any leaks because we didn't want the film company to come, New Line to come knocking at the door and say, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and all the, any, any scripts we had or any information would all be watermarked with um, Games Workshop ID so that, Basically, if anything got leaked, they'd know who it was, and I assume that that would work with all of their licenses. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was good good fun. But they they did give us unbelievable access over, over the over the course of the three movies, to the point where um, we had staff go down to New Zealand to spend time hobnobbing around with the uh, with Peter Jackson. I think Peter Jackson and the Perrys became firm and fast friends, and um, and I think I believe we're still even today are still communicating with each other about you know so uh,
0: they weren't they weren't nearly as interfering as um, TSR was, right with the models that you made necessarily.
1: The process is always a bit more complicated when actors are involved. and um, actors very often have actual contracted image rights mm-hmm. so they have um, they, so that in their contracts, they um, that they um, uh, are allowed to approve um, anything that's produced with with their image in it, and and even when actors don't necessarily have those contracted rights, sometimes the studios are very mindful to include them in the approvals process to keep them sweet and keep them on board. And I I, I don't know how that worked with any of the Lord of the Rings actors, other than that. I'm pretty sure they had a lot of them had contracted in image rights. In another project I was working on at Workshop, and I know that um, that we had some miniatures, or we had some models, um, not approved on the basis that the actor wouldn't have liked that feature or that detail, and we had to fix it and change it. Brian Nelson, who's who's um, one of the unspoken geniuses of miniatures designers at Games Workshop. Doesn't get anywhere near the credit he should get for his genuine, genuinely, genuinely um, brilliant design work. He he was on the project, and I, I know that uh, for one character, he, he um, sculpted the face. Um, we're talking dozens of times to try and get it. I think they try. I think the designers tried really hard, but um, white metal casting particularly is is can produce a variable result, especially if, as molds wear out um but uh no i think they did i think they did a pretty good job but they were trying desperately to make them look like the things in the movie after a short period i can't remember exactly the timing but um at some point in the in the 3 or 4 years sort of window of the movies and all the movie um, stuff going on we we went back to tolkien enterprises and said can we have a literary license as well and they said yeah of course you can mostly because we were we we went from being one of the I don't know how they rank how they ranked their their licensees licensees I was getting it wrong
0: licensees yeah I think
1: but we were not in rank A <laughs> we maybe started in rank C or D but um, we had such success with the Lord of the Rings product range miniatures and and the game I mean we're mega mega success with it not as much in America. But certainly in Europe, it was an absolute firestorm. It really was an absolute, absolute. Um, you know, it, it went gangbusters. We became quite a significant licensee for Newline. Mm. We we moved we moved quite quickly up the up the rank because because we were providing sustained royalties even throughout the in the 20 years subsequently. I think Games Workshop has probably given an extraordinary cumulative amount of royalties given the, the amount of um, stuff that we, we sold, and that's why it's still going. That's why Games Workshop could never never drop it because it just kept it just kept being um, completely viable commercially. Um, so uh, yeah, they, they ended up really liking us, and Tolkien uh, Enterprises, or Tolkien stakes were very happy to to give us. A literary license and that's why games workshop was able to expand the, the ranges in the way it has done outside of just the, the the six movies
0: yeah i've i know there's a lot of different um i'll call them armies of renown but i don't know exactly what they're referred to in lord of the rings but a lot of ancillary armies that weren't really in the movies as well
1: yes there's the all those chariots and things mm-hmm. eastlings and southerners and all that stuff and yeah there's some fun stuff actually and did um, do half choice. I forget, I forget most of it to be honest. Although I have, I have one of the advantages stroke disadvantages of working in the studio or around the studio, um, one's able to enjoy the hobby vicariously. There's so many fantastic armies that the, um, the professional crew produce but then all the staff are producing armies and and so you kind of go, oh, I'd really love to have that army. Ooh, that in A casual stroll through the studio, you'd see ten or twenty projects that you'd, you'd go, oh wow, each one of those is equally inspiring. To the point where you just go and stick to your knitting. You go back and you paint another Chaos Warrior. Okay? <laughs> so I, I have, I, I don't have anything like the number of armies you'd think I would have, or the number of miniatures that you'd think I would have had over collected over the years, because. You just kind of there's just too many things to catch up to keep to keep abreast of so i i don't really have that many laws of instruments, but i i'm like all hobbyists i have an ambition to to have vast armies of this that and the other